oh my gosh, I've been so good as a presenter at work all these years. Now I don't want to mess it up when I know millions of people are going <laughs> to. So what, what I always remind people is it's a process. There's no finish line. Everybody's going to hit a wall and feel nervous. Welcome to 20 Minute Leaders. Just sit back, relax, and learn from the leaders of today. It's a journey. Each one is different, unique, inspiring. Let's get started. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 208. Our guest today is Jill Wesley, founder of Science and Soul of Speaking. Jill Wesley helps world-class leaders stand out in their industry as the go-to speakers for virtual and in-person global events. Her mission is to help people find common ground and work together to find solutions to the world's biggest challenges. Jill has worked as an executive coach, professional speaker, and event producer for over 25 years and has led professional development programs in communication and leadership to over 85,000 leaders and their high-performing employees at some of the world's top organizations like Panasonic, LinkedIn, NFL Players Association, Salesforce, Stanford Law School, Google, Twitter, Square, Art.com, and Lyft. She's also head of speaker coaching for TEDx San Francisco, one of the top TEDx events in the world. Jill Wesley, thank you so much for joining my show, 20 Minute Leaders. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. How have you helped 80,000 people uh, become better speakers and convey their messages? How is that, how is that humanly possible? <laughs> how is it humanly possible? Well, I've done it for almost 30 years. And the number actually is higher than 85,000. It's because I was a road warrior for a really long time. So we did communication, intercultural communication and speaker coaching. So I was, I was on the road for a long time working with thousands and thousands of people. What, what does that mean working on the road? It means literally being on the road, moving between company and company and working physically with them. I was, I used to be one of those, uh, my 20s were spent traveling around the world doing it wow. as kind of a part-time backpacker. And then I would land in a country, make something work, save money, and then go spend it and travel some more. But then in my 30s, I, was, uh, I did corporate training and coaching. So I worked with um, as a consultant. So I was a, for a number of years, I was on the road maybe 100 days a year. 100 uh, days a year. States all over the world. Yeah, it was a lot. Give me you know, a, a little bit of taste. What were like some of the craziest places that, that this work took you or craziest experiences? Crazy experiences. Well, all the experiences were, were later you learn with per time, you know, time and uh, distance equals humor. So a lot of the crazy, <laughs> really difficult things that went on later became the best stories. I always tell my clients that when they're putting their keynotes together. Um, but there were times where, you know, I, I showed up to do a speaking gig and I, the, you know, there was no room for us or I had a fist fight one time in a session, but in terms of location, I've always, <laughs> yeah, but in terms just of just casually putting that in there and continuing, I, I love I, it. I said that too casually, but there's, when it's human behavior and you get a group of people together, it's a human lab and anything's possible. I didn't start the fight, but I'm just saying like anything can happen, but in terms of actual locations, um, I, I've just been really honored to work all over Asia and Europe and wow. spent a few, three months in Australia working at university at 23, I got to work at um, eight major universities in Australia. I didn't work that hard. It was fun and distracting and, you know, sunny. It was un great. Un unbelievable. Okay. So I, I had the privilege of giving a TEDx talk in Palo Alto about, I guess it was five years ago. It was hard. 
It yeah. was a process. It was really, really difficult, not just mm-hmm. getting up on stage, which is frightening for any person, uh, no matter how, how, you, how much you don't think you'll be scared. Uh, but the whole process is, is very difficult. Why is giving keynotes or presentations so hard? Well, it's hard for a number of reasons. If, if it's a business presentation, the average person can ch- be challenged with it because there's a lot riding on it. It's, it's the reputation at work. It's moving a process forward at work. It's getting your ideas heard or helping people make big decisions. So a lot of people know that there's a lot at stake and they feel nervous. If someone's doing a keynote, it's usually the combination of their work experience plus a bit of their thought leadership or personal brand. Yeah. Um, my day to day is is spent with senior leaders uh, who have a, a track record of success. So by the time they're on stage and we are working together at major events, um, part of it is, oh my gosh, I've been so good as a presenter at work all these years. Now I don't want to mess it up when I know millions of people are going. <laughs> So what, what I always remind people is it's a process. There's no finish line. Everybody's going to hit a wall and feel nervous. Um, I joke, it is my clients usually at one point are thinking like, how do I get out of doing this talk? What if I just tell them I was sick? What if I go in the witness protection program? You know, all these fantasies of not having to do it. But my job as a, as a coach is to just let them know that's a normal process. It's the messy middle. And, you know, I actually have a process to get them from start to finish. I, I like that the messy, the messy middle, the, this idea that at some point throughout the process, you're going to reach this block where you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm not prepared yet. It's not ready yet. And you forget that there are a few days left or a few weeks left. And, and you're sort of, I guess, imagining yourself giving the talk as it is now, even though that's not the reality, exactly. you still have time, right? Uh, but tell, tell me about this process that, that you work, um, because it's so fascinating to me because obviously it, it is, I believe that public, the fear of public speaking, if I'm not mistaken, is is more common than fear of death. I think it's yeah, the we haven't sourced that research, so it, it, <laughs> it's it's off quoted. You know, yeah, um, of course, it it is a common fear. I'll put it that way. Yeah. Uh, th- to, to this day, I'm not sure if I've heard anybody actually dying from public speaking. So most people, but it's you know, death itself is very existential. But the fear that we we experience and the nerves giving a talk is real and it's likely and it happens over and over again. So for most people, um, you know, it's a concern that on a on a cellular level for people, there's a concern that they're going to be judged, that they're going to fail. Yes. And your body is registering an actual threat and it's tell it's trying to protect you. So what I what a lot of people don't realize is when they're feeling nervous, they will then criticize themselves for feeling nerves. Like I can't believe I I told myself I wouldn't feel this way, or I've been doing this for five uh, years. Why? Okay. And that self criticism never makes the nerves go away. That's number one. Number two, reframing it from I'm feeling like I'm gonna die and my body's betraying me. If you understand that your body is actually having a response and it's it's doing what it thinks it's it needs to do to help you, and then and then reframing it from nerves to excitement. Most of my clients, I will say, the keynote clients that I work with are not terribly nervous. They're excited. Um, they've been speaking for years and in business or science for a number of years. So they're, they're hungry and they're excited. And sure. my job is to pull them out, like to get more of them into their talk. So it's not just their data and not just their work. 
So, so what makes a successful keynote, whether it's a business keynote uh, that's full of data and statistics or, or if it's more of a personal keynote about, about you know, your, your personal journey or about how, how others can gain inspiration from your journey? So give me some, some ideas of what makes a successful keynote. Yeah, I put it, I call them the three R's. So a re, the measure of a really successful presentation or talk isn't did everybody jump up and do a standing ovation because that's that's an experience in the moment but I really care about what happens when people leave so the three the three things are the three R's is your content relatable so for far too long people have gotten up on stage and spoken from a place or a perspective that was not taking into account the different lived experiences of people of color like me or women's experiences in work and life. So is the content relatable? And do you uh, truly understand and respect your audience where you're putting content together that, that relates to them? Number two, is your content something that people can remember? So you have to relate. Can people remember it? Meaning it's structured effectively that you're not doing a total data dump or you're right. telling you a personal story that takes 17 minutes that isn't <laughs> relevant to the audience. And then the third piece is, can people repeat it? Because a lot of my clients actually create movements. They're working at really high levels. If we're going to create systemic change or cultural change, movement type work, people have to be able to repeat what they heard to serve others. So those are the three things I talk about. And how do you measure that? So I gave a talk and I went off of stage and yeah, it's on YouTube and we have the views. Uh, what, how do I actually measure whether my talk was successful and it, according to the, these three R's? Yeah, it depends on, on the industry and the type of speaker I'm working with. So yes, of course, it's great to have those metrics and see that, you know, one of my clients talks is at 3 million. That's fabulous. However, the folks that I'm working with are already head down doing the deep work, and they happen to be on stage talking about it. So the metrics that we're actually looking at is did they get funding? Was there an increase in funding? It's a business development tool. Right. Were they able to get some key relationships that help them with their research? Were they able to align and get connections with policymakers? Um, so it's, it's much more tangible beyond the, the applause or the, sure. the gold stars? No, I think it's, it's incredible. I'm, you know, I'm coming from the software world and, um, you know, in the software world, when we launch, for example, a product, there's, two, there's a couple of ways of looking at it. One is you put up the website and you want to measure how many impressions have you had? How many people have gone and seen your beautiful, beautifully designed logo and your beautiful right. website? And then the question is, how many people actually put their credit card and paid? How many people actually converted to paying customers, which is obviously what you're optimizing for. You're not optimizing for how many people have seen it. You're optimizing for how many people have bought into your messaging. Uh, but And that brings me on to, to a, a, a set of questions that I have because, you know, going through this experience, you, you watch all these incredible talks, whether it's on TED or all these different platforms. And a lot of people are wondering as well, myself included, uh, how much are they improvised in the moment, authentic versus very rehearsed? Because a lot of them feel extremely improvised, very lively in the moment, but it, but there is a lot of preparation that goes in there. So how do you balance between the two? Yeah. So that's good that it, a lot of them feel improvised to you because the the bigger events. So I'm head of speaker coaching for TEDx San Francisco. So we're a premier event, global event. Yeah. And our <laughs> our speaker, there's no way we're going to let people just go up there and wing it. 
It's just of not. In the best. They won't present their best content that way. And the audience won't have the best experience. So you can't just sure. take that risk. Um, and Ted itself, because I've coached speakers that have spoken on Ted stages, they work together wow. with coaches for months and months. So the, the goal and is months. what people get where they get stuck is I don't want to sound canned. I don't want to sound rehearsed. And like I'm a robot. Yes. I don't want that either. But there's a difference between memorizing a talk and then actually integrating that talk into who you are. And that's the difference if you're thinking about someone who's an actor. An actor will know their lines, but a really good actor kind of disappears into the character and you're having they're having that experience with the audience. So I'm different from some other coaches because I'm my job is to meet my clients where they are. I have a ton of strategy in my pocket. So if I'm working with someone who I, I know is the type that really needs to like write their speech out word for word, and they're really attached to that, I'll let them do that initially, but I'm always going to get them from, it's not memorizing word for word. It's just knowing the flow. And yeah. if it's someone who likes to kind of be loose and be improvisational, I still get them to know the flow. So right, they know right. they're going to get this. They've practiced it multiple times, but there's space in the event that the audience will laugh. I mean, I, I put a lot of help my clients put humor in their talks and you will get a response from the audience or you'll get spontaneous applause. So you have to be present to actually engage with people in that moment. It's hilarious. You bring this up. I, I, so I, I'm, I gave a talk back in when I was 14 it was my second time on stage. Um, it was about up in real time. I had nothing interesting to say except for how a, how a 14 year old uses Skype to, to uh, do a video call with their math class from 15,000 miles away. Back then it was uh, 10 years ago. It wasn't very common. So it no. was, it was interesting to, to yeah. people in the audience. But what the funny thing was that I prepared so much for this talk. I, I, I'm releasing a book soon where I talk about some childhood experiences. And one of the experiences was walking around Central Park with my brother. And he is rehearsing with me word for word my speech, my talk for weeks. And leading up to the talk, I knew it so well. I could, I could say it in the middle of my sleep. I get to the stage and my first question is, hey, how is everybody doing? Now, when I rehearsed this talk, I never actually gave pause because there was nobody to answer. So when I got on stage, I said, hey, how everybody's doing? Great. Let's get started. And I never gave them a way to answer, which was oh, it's hilarious. That's what happens. <laughs> it is. It, you know, it's, it, I see a keynote in particular as a living thing. So yeah. very similar to you in product, I think of a keynote for my clients, it's a product launch. So it's an iterative process. We use, we use universal design theory. We have to test. You have to do all of those steps that you would do with product to make sure that whatever you create and deliver is truly something to your best, the best of your ability is something that the audience is going to relate to and sure. respond. But you have to take notes once you've done your keynote or you have to watch the film afterwards to see what really landed and pay attention to the questions you get at in the comments afterwards because it will inform this keynote because I, I help people deliver and deliver, excuse me, design an asset that they're going to keep using. So right. nobody should be giving the same exact keynote over and over to audience after audience, because you're in a different city, you're talking to people in different roles, different levels within an organization, you, you'd have to make it tie into what their lived experience is. A hundred percent. So, you know, 
a few in the few minutes we have left, I'd love some pointers on things that I could take with me to whatever future presentations I make, or at least the process of of working on those presentations. Because obviously, uh, not everybody is so lucky to to have you as a coach in preparing for their keynotes. And I'd love to get some pointers into what can I do the next time I go to present something to my boss in my start in the startup that I work for. What can my friends do when they're about to go in class and present something in front of five hundred people on their research? Sure. I have a five-step process I use called dig deeper. Um, Cause you can find in, in 10 minutes, you 10 seconds, you can find the steps to give a general presentation. You know, you analyze your audience, you get your big message together and support it with an, and then put an action step. But something deeper that I use as a checklist with senior leaders is five steps. So first you have to speak the truth. So it's really figuring out what is my truth, my understanding of the truth? And do I have do I have an accurate sense of what's actually going on? Because if you're presenting, let's say it's someone who's entry level or, you know, middle management and they're presenting to their boss and they don't ha- they're not accurate, it's a credibility hit right there. So make sure that you you really have the truth and you you are acknowledging your blind spots and biases. Second, right. it's empathy. And it's not just empathy for how other people are feeling, but having a sense of cognitive empathy. So it's what what might be what are other people thinking about, and a bit of what's called rational compassion, because there are limits to empathy. Uh, we tend to empathize the most with people who are similar to us. Yeah. Or people, if we've had a similar experience, where we say, "Well, I did it. It shouldn't be that hard. Just work hard. You can do it yourself." And it's like, listen, someone's having a different <laughs> life journey than you are. So it's truth, it's empathy, and then it's really thinking about, do you have an element of hope when you're talking? Are you speaking in a way where people feel like they can do this, that it's, that it's not beyond everybody's ability? Sure. The fourth step is your vision. So what do you see as possible and can you communicate it in a way that other people can actually be there right with you? And then the last step, which is huge, is accountability. Accountability is missing from most talks. There are real general things at the end of a presentation or a talk and people just be really general, like you can do it. Come on. And people, if people can't get a clear grasp of what needs to be done, those initial steps, they're less likely to do anything. And that's why people go from event to event to event to get pumped up and they, but they don't know how to actually do it. So they're chasing the high of being in the room versus, oh, wait, I want to make some behavioral change. It actually takes strategy and habit. I like the accountability. Jill, why spend so much time on this? Why work with so many speakers? Why go through all the, through this process? What gets you excited about science and, so, science and soul of speaking? Oh, my gosh. I, I have the best job in the world. Like I'm, I truly, I'm truly doing the thing I love to do most. My work doesn't feel like work at all, at all. And, um, I stand on the shoulders of people who came before me. I'm, I'm African American. I come from generations of people who weren't able to use their voice and I'm fortunate to have that luck. Yeah. I've, I've worked hard, but it's luck and timing. I was born when I was born and I feel that everyone deserves the ability to speak their truth and know what matters. And that's why I do this work. 
I love it. Before we leave, I want to thank you again for being so generous of your time. This was just a wonderful, insightful, inspiring. I just loved it. And I'll definitely, I definitely look forward to, to reflecting on this talk as I continue on in my journey and, and hopefully collaborate together one day if I'm ever fortunate enough to make it to those big stages that, that you help people on. Before we leave, Jill, I need three words that you would use to describe yourself and, and why those three specific words. Okay. Well, I've been inside the house for months. So, I mean, my initial three words are like yoga pants, potato chips, and TV. But if we go a little bit deeper, um, the first one is commitment. I'm really committed to doing the work um, I do and and helping people. It's curiosity. I've always yeah. been, I've always been curious and willing to ch- challenge myself to keep keep my mind open and then um, collaborative because nobody nobody gets ahead on their own. And it's really about working together. And, and if you get into a big room and you get through that door, it's keeping that door open and waving other people into. I love it. Jill, thank you very, very much. My this pleasure. was just wonderful. And stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks.